Good morning, everyone. Please go ahead and find Romans chapter 6 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 6, that's what we'll be today. So what if I told you that I have the answer to every problem you encounter? What if I tell you that I have the answer to every need you have on a macro and micro level, on every level, to make it in life? What if I told you that I have the answer to everything general and specific in your life? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, I'm here to tell you today, I actually have the answer. Uh, There is only one pursuit I know of, only one direction in life that will make any sense of our warped and wicked and wandering ways. There aren't a bunch of really good options. There is only one. The only way is to be enslaved to God, to be a slave of God. We are in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. It's about two slaveries. Slavery to sin leading to death. Slavery to God leading to eternal life. And slavery to God is the only way to life. So I'm going to ask you to please stand with me in honor of God and his word as I read this passage of scripture. I'm going to read Romans 6, 20 to 23. When you preach one of the most famous verses in the Bible, like Romans 6, 23, It is an awesome responsibility that no one should try to do in their own strength. That is true of every Bible passage. One of my mentors used to say, as we are saved by God's grace, we live by God's grace, we serve by God's grace, and we lead by God's grace. And so, by God's grace, I bring you the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, and I'm going to read Romans 6, 20 to 23. When you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence with us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, all for your glory. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Two slaveries and their resulting destinies. Nothing good comes from one, only good comes from the other, as God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The first thing we see in this passage is that slavery to sin leads to eternal death, verses 20 and 21. The second thing we see is slavery to God leads to eternal life, verses 22 and 23. Paul is talking to Christians here, and he's basically saying, like, don't ever think that slavery to sin is better than slavery to God. Sin pays death, God gives life in Christ. Slavery to God is the only way to life. So let's look first at verse 20 and see about slavery to sin and how it leads to eternal death. It begins this way, it says, when you were slaves of sin. So he's going back in the life of believers, he's looking back and he's saying, remember when, 
Remember your old life. Remember when you were a slave of sin. Now, when we think of slavery, we think of it as a bad thing because it usually is. There's a lot of harm that humans have done to one another that God does not bless at all. But why is the Bible then using the idea of slavery? Murray Harris, in his book, Slave of Christ, a New Testament metaphor for total devotion to Christ, writes this. Let us not overlook the obvious fact that Christianity did not create enslavement, but inherited a deeply entrenched system of slavery. Christianity accepted slavery as an inevitable part of the social and economic status quo without questioning or trying to justify its existence. John MacArthur, on the importance of the word doulos here, slave, in the New Testament, and wanting to let the hard reality of its meaning land on us today, said this. He said, here we have a massive dominating New Testament paradigm for understanding our relationship to Jesus Christ. When you say doulos, slave, and then you say kurios, master, everyone in the Greek culture at that time knew exactly what you were talking about. There is no such thing as kurios without doulos, no such thing as a master without a slave. If you don't have slaves, you're not a master of anyone. If you are the master, you have slaves. He goes on to say, in the ancient world, this was the most demeaning term possible by which to identify yourself. Freedom was everything. They would have stood with William Wallace, you know, Braveheart, and screamed, Freedom! It was all about freedom. They understood the value of it, the virtue of it, and they mocked slavery. MacArthur goes on, the difference between a servant and a slave was that a servant was hired for a job and paid. A slave was owned. The Bible does not condemn or condone slavery. It just borrows it as the perfect metaphor to picture a Christian's relationship to Christ. But slavery is also a horrible reminder in metaphor form of how terrible sin is, how awful sin is. Slavery to sin is, is a death trap prison. Sin is your enemy, it's after you, it's like a devouring animal, uh, defeating, destroying, deflating, demanding, delighting in your downfall. Sin is a free fall on a slippery slope. It's like getting caught in an avalanche. Sin is your worst day ever. Sin is transgression of the law, a revolt against God and his will, forensic failure on the part of man. It's transgressing the boundary line of right and wrong. Donald Guthrie said this, sin is a debt, a burden, a thief, a sickness, a leprosy, a plague, a poison, a serpent, a sting. But we see in this verse is that to be a slave of sin is to be free from the control of righteousness. That's a horrible freedom. That's not the kind of freedom you want. You might think you want it. But it is a bondage so demanding that it will cost you your life. And so Paul is looking back in these believers' lives and he's saying, when you were slaves of sin. When you were, then you were also free in regard to righteousness. What does that mean? It means that righteousness to you at that point was irrelevant. It wasn't in your vocabulary. 
Romans is about righteousness. Look at your sermon notes on the left side. It's about righteousness. God's righteousness revealed in the gospel received through faith in Christ. Romans is about righteousness. It's about believing the gospel of God providing the way of salvation. It's about resting in that gospel, the progressive growth in holiness and the struggles that attach to it and the ultimate victory we have in Christ. It's about rejoicing in that gospel of God's electing grace and his sovereignty and our accountability to God. It's about living the gospel by God's grace, about being unashamed of the gospel, about being uncondemned by our sin and to be unconformed to the world. And he's saying to them, when you were a slave to sin, you wanted none of that. It didn't make any sense to you. It was foolishness to you. He's saying you will either be a slave to sin who is free from righteousness or a slave of righteousness who is free from sin. Look at verse 21. He begins to talk about fruit. This is the word for fruit, okay? He's saying what fruit, what benefit, what outcome did you get at that time? So back in your past for the things for which you are now ashamed. Every time you see the word fruit, it's always using a positive meaning when Paul uses it. What he is saying is, there was nothing positive about your sin. It got you nothing good. It was only bad. You were committing shameless acts, as Romans 1 speaks. It led to misery and pain, not the promised false happiness. We know we suffer over our sin. We suffer because of it. The creation groans in bondage to decay. We, we live outside of Christ. We live unashamed of our sin and we reveled in it. We thought we were just fine. Before you knew Christ, maybe you experienced some cultural shame. Maybe you were doing things that the culture said, oh, you shouldn't do that. And maybe your conscience made you wonder at times, but you pushed right through all of that And even though you knew right and wrong, you knew you couldn't do right, and you just justified yourself. You thought you were better than most, and you totally blinded. You were on the road to hell and death. But he's saying to believers, but now now that you've been saved by Jesus, you're now ashamed of how you lived before. Your sins seem far worse now. God brought you to your senses You are uncondemned by your sin in Christ, but you are ashamed of your sin before you came to know Christ. And you're ashamed of sins you commit now because you're still struggling with sin. You call sin, sin as a believer. You say, yeah, sin is sin. And and you regret your former ways and you regret your present sins. That's what it means to be a believer. Have the Holy Spirit living in you and convicting you of sin. In fact, This is a hard thing, but if you're not ashamed of past sin, you might not be saved. In Ezekiel 16, verse 62, God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. After you've been forgiven, you're going to be ashamed for the sins that you committed. Because the nature of sin is rebellion against God. 
It is not considering God good. It is thinking that he's withholding something from you. But here's what we find. Even among believers, uh, widely divergent understandings of sin. Even professing Christians seeming to celebrate or condone or excuse sin without shame. Calling evil good. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, we are to renounce things hidden because of shame. There are a lot of issues that are getting harder to talk about in our society. One of those issues is the definition of homosexuality as a sin. We just witnessed California Assembly Bill 2943 being pushed through the state assembly. If you watched any of the actual record of, of, that, of that scene, as a believer, your jaw probably dropped. Like, wow, that's, that's what's going on in our society today. Uh, you cannot escape the fact that our culture basically redefines morality and calls wrong right and right wrong. There's popular sins, there's unpopular sins. But it is popular in some circles to agree with or allow what God forbids. All through the Bible, you know what you see? There ought to be an observable difference between the church and the world. And sometimes there's not. We are called to love all people while we balance truth and grace. We are not to condone sin. We are not to condemn people for their sin. And we all know everyone struggles with sin. Everyone struggles with sin. But what happens is some people say, I know what I'll do. I'll just define reality, you know, and poof, no more ethical issue, no more moral quandary, or so they think. And what you have is God-given consciences, as the Bible put it, being seared as with a branding iron, hardened to God. It's a result of rejecting God and his word. Just 11 days ago, the editors of GQ magazine published a list of 21 books that you don't have to read, and 21 you should read instead. They eliminated The Old Man in the Sea, The Lord of the Rings, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the Bible. The Bible was number 12 on their hit list, and here's what they wrote about the Bible. They said, the Holy Bible, which you're like, you're calling the Bible holy. Hmm. The Holy Bible, and they looked at the title and saw that, but I'm sure. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. This is what they said. And then they said, read the notebook instead. I am not kidding. I am not making this up. So they arrogantly judge God. This is what slavery to sin does to you. It warps your mind. And it, you can't condemn them. I mean, they're not, um, they're not believers. What does it do to a believer who's trying to follow Jesus but gets caught back into sin? Sin warps your mind. It gives you a false view of reality. And so Paul is so intent on giving people the truth about sl slavery to sin. He's saying it leads to death. Only slavery to God leads to life. He says, what fruit 
What benefit, what outcome were you, were you getting? What did slavery to sin give you? He's like, nothing good. And then he says, the end of those things. Those things that you are now ashamed of. Those things, a life characterized by sin, is death. He's telling them straight up, your short-term pleasure leads to long-term death. Back a couple weeks ago, we were in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 19, and we were talking about presenting ourselves to God and uh, serving Him obediently from our hearts, being well-grounded in the Word of God as the foundation of our faith. And in 2 Timothy 3.8, there are two people that are listed that are remembered for their sin, and it's a very interesting thing that happens. The two names are Janus and Jambres, and they are... They are from the Old Testament, but they're never named in the Old Testament. This is the first time they're listed in the Bible. Who are they? Well, they were the Egyptian magicians referred to several times in Exodus chapters 7 through 9 that opposed Moses. It's the first time their names pop up in the Bible. The Holy Spirit has Paul name check them, expose them. You're like, who were those? Who were those magicians that opposed Moses? Well, Janus and Jambres. Uh, they did not obey God from the heart. They, they obeyed sin and they paid the consequences. And the important thing to remember is that God remembers what everyone thinks and says and does. That's a startling thought. And Judgment Day will reveal many things that history glossed over. And so what Paul is really saying is we have a choice. We have a choice as followers of Christ, to present ourselves to the old master, sin, or to God. Prior to coming to Christ, coming to faith in Christ, you could not nor would not choose God. And he's saying the result of slavery to sin is a lack of good fruit that brings shame and ultimately eternal death. He spells it out very clearly. He wants them to know. He doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. Slavery to sin leads to eternal death. The second thing we see in this passage, look at verse 22. Slavery to God leads to eternal life. Okay, now we'll get happier here, okay? Now we'll get happier. Now that you have been set free from sin. Okay, this is good. You have been. He's talking to people who have been set free from sin. That takes us back to the start of chapter 6. The question, well, how can I be dead to sin? How can I be free from sin if I still struggle with sin? All of us knows we still struggle with sin. And we read in there that we have been set free. It's because in Christ, you've been set free from sin to serve God freely. You can now serve God. You are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. You are to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You are to present yourself to God as his servants over and over and over again. You are not to let sin reign in your life. Romans 8 verse 2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. He says, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now he's talking about the good slavery, the best possible slavery. You become slaves of God. Remember, it's the metaphor for total devotion to Christ. You become slaves of God. So the fruit, or the benefit, or the outcome that you get is sanctification leading to eternal life. Now, 
Now you have good fruit. Before, when you were a slave to sin, there was no good fruit. The, the actions that you, were ashamed, that you are now ashamed of didn't bring you any good fruit. But now in Christ, you want to please God. You want to grow in Christ. You have salvation. You're not condemned. You have justification. You're not immediately perfect, as everyone knows. Like one second after you become a believer, you realize, oh, I didn't become immediately perfect. I still sin. But now there's this process of growing in Christ that you have been put into. You are being sanctified. And the fruit that you get from being slaves to God leads to sanctification, which is a really good thing. The Bible says that we are sanctified and being sanctified by God himself, by his spirit. Hebrews 12 tells us we should pursue it. We are to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we do that via prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 5, prayer, offering our hearts to God, pouring out our hearts to God, giving him our wounds, giving him our desires, giving him our requests, and mostly giving him our praise. And we're to pursue it via the word of God that sanctifies us, as the Bible says. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prayed to the Father. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So you get to know God by prayer and his word, and, and you do this every day, alone and with as many people as you can gather. Start with your household first and your closest friends. Because in John 8, there were some Jews that had believed in Jesus, and Jesus said to them, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. So you know if you are really a disciple of Jesus, you continue in his word. And then he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answer him, hold on. We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus says, truly I say to you, literally amen, amen, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. He's like, you were slaves to sin. The slave, though, does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son, Jesus, sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a promise. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. What drives you every day? You get up in the morning. What drives you to get up, get dressed, and go do your, your thing. What compels you? I want to be Christ-driven, not Mike-driven. You don't want to be Mike-driven either. You don't want to be self-driven. You want to be Christ-driven. Because Christ-driven people, they, they want God's will. They pray dependently. They persist in doing good. They appropriately repent. They reconcile with people. They restore relationships. They're wise. They're discerning. They leave judgment to God. They, they humbly and boldly speak gospel truth. They point clearly to Christ alone as the way and the truth and the life. Christ-driven people, quite simply, seek to glorify God. You wake up in the morning and you say, thank you, Lord, for keeping me alive through the night. When I had no idea, you were keeping me breathing and my heart beating. And thank you for this new day. And Lord, just recalibrate my heart every moment as needed. 
You know, if you want God to recalibrate your heart, he will. Because you will serve either sin or God. There, there are these two possible slaveries, and, and God's grace has set believers free to serve God. And only slavery to God leads to eternal life. Now, there are some huge contrasts here between sin and God and wages and gift and death and eternal life. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. The wages of sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have a contrast here between sin and God. Sin affects your view of reality and morality and mortality and every malady, pretty much. Uh, uh, It says good is bad and right is wrong. It turns the world upside down. It is a cruel and unusual taskmaster. You contrast that with God, who works for his glory and our good. And so rather than ruining us as sin does, God redeems us. He transfers us into Christ. These things are as polar opposite as they can be. You've got a contrast here between wages and gift. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Wages, that was something that was given. And back then, it actually meant fish. I'm a, I'm a, I could be a pescatarian, I'm telling you. I love fish. Um, it's about, it was about fish, and then, and then it became cooked food, and then it became grain that you would give soldiers so they could make bread, and then some money you'd give them to put something on the bread. <laughs> and, and the idea here is just provisions, you know, wages, what you earn, money paid for services rendered to a soldier. In the Bible, it was about a soldier's pay. And so here, the wages of sin is death. It pictures sin as a commanding officer that is paying wages to soldiers. And and sin pays you the wages. Do you notice that? The wages of sin is death. Sin is is the commanding officer that pays you the wages. And the wages are death, eternal separation from God. Basically, sin provides an all-expenses-paid trip to hell. Sin is a master who always pays on time and in full. Contrast that with the gift. Literally, it's the Greek word for grace. It literally means grace gift. The free gift, the grace gift, undeserved, chosen by another. The grace gift from God, his sovereign choice to grant it. Nothing you could ever do to earn it. So you work for sin's wages, it's fully deserved. You don't work for salvation, it's fully undeserved. For many people, payday is tomorrow. And if your employer doesn't pay you your wages, you can actually sue them for it. You can take them to court and say, they didn't pay my wages, you know, for like three months. But you can't sue someone for not giving you a gift. That's that's ludicrous. It's their choice, not yours. And there's a contrast between death and eternal life. In verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two unchanging things. Spiritual death is the paycheck for everyone's slavery to sin, and 
Eternal life is a free gift that God gives undeserving sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. Sin kills you, Jesus saves. That's the way it is. Paul is saying, it's like he's saying, look everybody, don't go back to sin. And don't try to do this alone. Help each other. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of believers. There was a story of an eagle whose owner tied it to a post. Kind of sad. I think this is like harm to animals, okay? Uh, A story of an eagle that was tied to a post and literally just walked round and round in circles around the post. So the eagle gets a new owner, and the new owner says, this is not how eagles should live. I'm going to set the eagle free. Uh, And the crowds showed up. They wanted to see as the rope was removed, how the eagle would soar. But the eagle kept going round and round the pole. It was free to fly, but it did not fly. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Well, that's the scene that would be like a Christian who continues in slavery to sin. We're to press on to maturity. We're, as God by grace enables us to never tire of the gospel story, but go on into the depth and maturity in Christ. You know, you know if you're saved or not. You just know it. Every time I preach, I I try to make sure the simple gospel message is there. God is holy. We are sinful. Christ died in our place as our substitute. He shed his blood. He he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day, and we are to repent and believe the gospel. We are to do our due diligence and call unbelievers to faith and repentance. We are also to do our due diligence and call believers to the same as well as to obedience. We're to obey God. And we preach to all. Only God knows. I don't have any idea which one of you are truly saved or not. I, I just don't. I, I see evidence, I see fruit, and I, and I wouldn't have a lot of doubts for all of you that I know, okay? I'm just saying. I, I'm not going in today going, you know, there's a five people in this service that I just know aren't, aren't saved. You don't, you don't want to think like that. You don't even want to operate that way. But only God knows those who are actually marked out for destruction. Now, back in the fall, there was a fire right near my house in Santiago Oaks Park, and there were a lot of oak trees that on the outside got singed, but you'd think to yourself, they're going to grow back. But I'm walking along as they're starting to open up the park, and I notice all these trees that have like an orange dot on them. What's up with the orange dot? Well, they said, the, the roots have been ruined, and we need to cut the tree down, because if you don't cut the tree down, it could fall on someone and kill them. Safety hazard. And so they're destined to be cut down. They're destined to be thrown in the fire. But people don't go around with orange dots on, right? It's just, it's just not that way. It's not how God did it. You just preach the gospel to everybody. Jude said it this way. He says, look, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of, our, of, of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to tell you right now, I, I know of no one who attends Grace Church of Orange who is in that category. Only God knows. But he says this, I want to remind you, 
that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, oh, Jesus did that, hmm, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world should be saved through him. The one who believes is not condemned. The one who does not believe is condemned. You see, the wages, the paycheck for sin that it pays is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if you're a believer, you are literally chained to God for eternity. And it's the best freedom. It is slavery to Christ. The best freedom is slavery to Christ. And standing above it a whole, holding everything together, working all things after the counsel of his will, is God himself. Look at the last phrase in verse 23. The difference maker in all of this is God himself. He is one amazingly awesome God, and he is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that last phrase? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter six is all about unity uh, with Christ, being united with Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, you're united with Christ. You have union with Christ. And here it says that you are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that puts in sharper focus Uh, What we saw last week in Isaiah 40, the infinite awesomeness of God who reveals himself intimately to our hearts in Christ. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, over 180 times in the New Testament, you see some rather big titles for Jesus. He isn't just called Jesus, he isn't just called the Christ, but among them, he is called our Lord Jesus Christ, and then Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that interesting? Like, Jesus and Christ get, get flipped and get, get interchanged, and all I can tell you is word order matters. It's what you're emphasizing. So when you see a title for, for Jesus, like Christ Jesus, Christ, when Christ is first, it emphasizes that he is the Messiah, the one who fulfills everything that the prophet said the Messiah would do. Titles with Jesus first emphasize his humanity. So here in verse 23, it's emphasizing Christ's greatness as the Messiah. But it's not downplaying his love as the Savior. He is Christ Jesus, emphasizing his greatness as Messiah and his love as Savior. He is awe-inspiring and he is love-inspiring. He frees us from sin with with sheer, raw, unadulterated power. That's awe-inspiring. And then he grants us eternal life. What amazing love. What amazing love. He, He is great. He is Christ. He is loving. He is Jesus. He is personal. You notice our Lord our, uh, and he's, he's awesome, he's the Lord, he's the master, which means that he is, and I'm gonna give you two big words, don't be afraid of big words when they're relating to God, he is imminent and he is transcendent. He is close to us, imminent, he is so far above us, transcendent. We should not avoid these significant words as related to God. He is, in, he is imminent, That means he is near. 
He is active in the creative order. He is present with believers. He is involved in the world. He dwells with his people. The incarnation, where Jesus became man, took upon himself human likeness, lived and then died for us, shows his his imminence. Athanasius said, he became what we are so that we might become like he is. And God is also transcendent. He is infinitely exalted above all creation. He is totally other. He is totally holy. He is set apart from all else. He is in a class by himself. He is the only self-sufficient being. He alone exists from within himself. And all his creatures depend upon him for life and breath and everything they need to live. And so, of course... Of course, in the presence of a holy God, we are ashamed of our sin. Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord lofty and exalted, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. That is the proper response of a sinner before a holy God. You think back and you realize that before you knew Jesus, you didn't think you were all that bad. Until the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin, and suddenly it hit you like a ton of bricks. The weight of your sin crushed you and you realize Jesus died for your sin at the cross and the shed blood is now applied to your soul and Jesus lifted the burden of your sin and you are now free. God is so merciful. God is so gracious. He is so good to us, is he not? We respond in worship. We respond in adoration. We love him because he first loved us. We who were slaves to sin with no way out, God made a way. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. What difference does that make? What difference does that make for you and I today? I'm here to tell you it makes all the difference in the world how you are living right now. It just does. The only way to know if you are in the arena of life or the realm of death is the direction you are going in your life right now. Are you pleasing Jesus or pleasing yourself? You look in the Bible, there are so many imperatives of what we should do built on the indicative truth of what God has done in Christ. Things like Galatians 5.1, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You know from, from Romans that being under God's grace never encourages you to sin and that practicing righteousness is evidence of God's grace in your life. But we cannot bank on rely upon the fact of God's grace and ignore the need for concrete evidence in the specifics of our life. You are going to continue, if you're a believer, you're going to continue to deal with the the struggle of indwelling sin and remnants of indwelling sin. But you also need to know that while you're struggling, real and sustainable change is possible because of God's grace in Christ. That you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave to the Son. You are a new creation who must say no to sin in the power of the Spirit. This is why Titus 2 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's because we've been bought with a price. It's because we're owned by another. It's because of the precious blood of Christ. And so what we need to do 
is, is literally take the decisive step to offer ourselves to God and then take that step tomorrow and then take that step the next day too and every day God gives you. Where you keep surrendering yourself, you keep praying, you keep going to the word, you keep fellowshipping with fellow believers, you keep sharing your faith in Christ, you keep doing the things you know pleases God. Isn't it always good to talk with people who want to please God? Isn't it pleasant and and joyful to talk with people who want to honor God? Verse 20 assumes believers in Rome wanted to be slaves of righteousness and free from their sin. And verses 21 to 23 make it very clear so there is no misunderstanding that our minds ought to be set on thinking that slavery to sin leads to death. Don't ever think that slavery to sin is preferable to slavery to God. And here is Paul literally convincing the mostly convinced of the goodness, of the rightness, of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's saying, come on, I'm gonna remind you. Jesus comforts the hurting. Uh, Jesus keeps the weak. Jesus calls back the wandering. And I wanna say this as I close. Even if, as a believer, you want to quit, stay on the path that you've been put on in Christ. Ignore all arguments raised up against the knowledge of God dependently believe the truth that Jesus is the only way, he is the life, everything else leads to death. And slavery to God is the only way to life. Amen? So Lord, we thank you for freedom. We thank you for the fruit of righteousness that you bear through us. We thank you for fullness of joy. We thank you that one day we will have final freedom from the presence of sin and fully dwell in your presence. We pray expectantly, Lord, that you would free prisoners of sin, that you would fix our hearts on you alone, that you would found our souls on bedrock biblical truth, cause the devil to flee, and that you would be honored and set apart in our hearts as God Almighty, all-glorious, our sovereign God, providential orchestrator of all good things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.